If you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John chapter 19 as we continue our study this morning of John's Gospel. John chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verse 1 down through verse 16. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone of Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we approach you in your word this morning, we pray that your spirit would be our help and guide. Lord, give us eyes of faith to see these things that we're being invited to see. Through all the mocking and all the irony, Lord, may we see you, our cosmic king, the one who came to do this, to die in our place. Help us, shape us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim it to you, eternal life, which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us, that which we have seen, which we have heard and we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John seems to have a particular interest in having us see. Multiple times in the text that we just read in John 19, we hear, behold, look, see. In John chapter 1, look, see. In 1 John chapter 1, we have seen Him, we have heard Him, we have touched him with our hands. He, he's got this bone to pick. He wants us to see Jesus with eyes of faith. He also knows that we haven't been there. We haven't seen everything that has gone on. We didn't see Nathaniel lounging under the tree. Jesus saw that. We didn't see the, Jesus sitting tired and thirsty at noon with a woman who, who would come to draw water. We, we didn't see that with our eyes. We didn't see Jesus casting out the money changers. Our eyes have not been there. We didn't see Jesus continue to break bread and fish over and over and over again to feed thousands of people. We didn't see it. We didn't see him walk on water. The one who created physics, overcoming all of them to, to take a stroll on a, a sea at storm. We didn't see him restore sight to the blind or tell a, a crippled man to, to get up, take your bed, and walk. But John is inviting us into all of that. He wants us to see with eyes of faith who Jesus is. That is the burden of this gospel all along. I want you to see, rightly see, who this is. Who is Jesus? We're being invited to see him with eyes of faith. That's the point of this, this whole gospel. One of the burdens of John that he's been trying to explain all along is that Jesus is none other than the eternally existent Son. He is the eternally existent Son of God. He's also taking us by the hand, holding our hand, and giving us all these details to show this, this one thing. Why, if He is truly the eternal Son of God, why does He end up dead on a Roman cross? Does that make sense to you? If I told you today that I'm going to introduce you, I'm going to take you over and introduce you to the eternal Son of God who created all things by the word of His power, and then three years later you saw Him die, a, a horrible execution, what would you think? That's why He's trying to show us all this stuff. 
Look, pay attention, see with eyes of faith so that you can know why he is here and know who he is. Today in our text, we're going to be told multiple times to to see, to behold, behold the, the man. That's for us. Yeah, that's Pilate making a statement to the crowds that are there looking on, but it's to us. Last week we saw the trial of Jesus before Annas and Pilate. We saw Jesus being betrayed three times by his friend and disciple Peter. We see Jesus brought before Pilate with the charge of sedition. And Jesus and his claims to be king. John wants us to see all these minute details and the the layers of irony because he wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants us to know why this is so important. Today we're going to focus on the sentencing of Jesus, which... We just read, which is very easy for the Jews and even for the soldiers, but a little more difficult for Pilate. I don't know if you notice multiple times he's hesitant. And you add to this, Matthew 27 says this, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him that his Pilate have nothing to do with this righteous man for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream deep in conflict. Pilate is deeply conflicted. John is wanting us to see all of this, all all of this detail. But the three that we're going to focus on is behold the man, look at the innocent lamb, and see your king. First, See, behold, the man. This is the goal of all Christian discipleship, is to see Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. This is the goal of Christian discipleship. Laying aside sin, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured this, endured the cross. This is the goal. Eyes of faith set on Jesus, who despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 1 Samuel chapter 3 says this, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. He appeared by the word. He appeared by the word. That's what we see today. So remember the the setting again. Pilate is acting as judge for Jesus. So who is Jesus? Is he a criminal? Is he a political dissident? Is he a clown king? Dressed up? Mockingly? Or is he actually 
the King of kings and Lord of lords. We have all these contrasts crashing together. Look at verse 1 again. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. This was a, a terrible punishment. Often it went hand in hand together with crucifixion. You wouldn't want to take somebody who's not already weakened and try to nail them on a cross. This is the way to to loosen someone up and to make the death quicker. If you just took a healthy person and nailed them up, that's going to take a long time. This is like the preliminary. This is the warm up to what is eventually going to be a death sentence. That's what flogging is. They would, to to sap their strength, they would take a a person and strip them and tie them to a post. And multiple people would then beat beat them with whips. Whips that had metal tied into the whip, pieces of glass or bone. It's, It's meant to flay, it's meant to cut. There are accounts of uh, this kind of beating before uh, crucifixion. I was reading this, this week that would leave organs exposed. This is, this is savage. Neither John nor the other gospel writers spend much time giving detail about this portion because it would like, for us, it would be like the electric chair. You're not going to spend a ton of time explaining all the voltage and how things work because you just understand that it's horrible and this is the way people die. So they don't spend a whole lot of time on it. He took him and had him flogged and everybody would know, oh, that's what they're doing. Then we see these details, a, a purple robe mocking soldiers coming up to Jesus and in mockery, bowing down to him. Hail, King of the Jews. A a vicious crown. A crown woven of thorns thrust on his head. A target not just for the flogging, not just for the whips, but also for beating. They were striking him with their fists. Again, in this context, we hear Pilate probably scared for his job, his power, his title. Pilate went out to him, to them again in verse 4. See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So here, here's Jesus brought back out. So the flogging happens away probably near the barracks where the soldiers who inflict these things live. Then he comes back out in mockery. And Pilate says, behold the man. It's a a very interesting thing to, to, to say. Behold the man. Look. Right here. See him. To to see what man is supposed to look like. John is showing us the epitome of what it means to be a man. Here is is the ultimate man. 
to, to think about this phrase, we have to go back to the garden, everything is good, it's the way it's supposed to be. Adam walks with God in the cool of the day. John wants us to see the utter irony of the statement. Jesus marched out in kingly clothes. He is the archetype of what, it, of what a human is. Here is the perfect man. Behold the man. Look at him, his flesh torn and blood running down his face a neck from the thorns in his head. This is the perfect embodiment of humanity. Here he is. Look at him. For the first time since the garden in the fall, we have a real human being. Not one marred by sin like you and me. Perfection. In every possible way. Beaten, flogged, mocked, and and he's saying, look at him. He's perfect. Behold the man. What are some lessons we can learn from this embodiment of the perfect human? Unlike Adam, this man fully obeys the Father in every possible way that we rebel. Still in Adam, we rebel. He perfectly obeys. Unlike Adam, this man wants the good of everyone else instead of seeking his own good. He's in this place because of grace, because he has come to redeem. Unlike Adam, this perfect human will lead his people back into a right relationship with God the Father instead of leading them away from that relationship. Unlike Adam, this human is taking us to heaven and not hell. We live in, in a world that is so full of chaos on this issue. What, what, is, what does it mean to be human? So confused that male and feet, like gender, things that we should utterly take for granted become utterly broken and confused. A huge segment of our world thinks that man is simply what we think. This is rationalism. Descartes gave us a, a huge dose of this. I think, therefore I am. We are what we are based on what we think. Others define human beings based on not what they think, but purely in material terms. I am the chemicals that make me up. That's what I am. Racism defines people simply in terms of their race. Darwin says survival of the fittest and we're all lucky to be here. Good job. Others say that we are what we produce. The only value that a person has in this world is the mark that we make, the impression that we leave. Consumerism says that we are what we get. He who dies with the most toys wins. Self-expression, a huge idol in our world. I can be whatever I say I am. And we, we are what we say we are. This is the follow your heart model for a man. And into all of that and cutting across all these notions of what it means to be a person, John is holding up Jesus and saying, look. You want to see what a person is, look right here through Pilate. 
Pilate saying he's innocent? Look at him. You want to see what humanity is? Look right here. See your Lord. See the Christ. Psalm 8, man is not defined by individualism, but by his relationship to God himself. When I look to your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor and have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. That is this Jesus. That is this man. In John 19, the Holy Spirit and John and Pilate are inviting us to look at him. Here is the man, Christ, the perfect man, power and glory and dignity and honor. All of it. Flogged. A purple robe and mockery. A crown of thorns. See him. Take take him in by faith. See him not with your physical eyes, but with a heart of faith. Believe that this is the the true God-man. Of this crown of thorns, I was wondering about the connection between some of these pieces. Because clearly there are royal realities going on. We're going to talk about him being a king in a little bit. Then I started to think about the fall and Adam. Do you remember the curse that that God gave to Adam? Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat the rest of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Thorns and thistles God specifically mentions to Adam way back in the garden. And here, with Jesus, we see thorns. It's really remarkable. Jesus is is taking, what John is saying is Jesus is taking the curse of the ground of the earth and it is being placed on his head. He takes the results of the curse and wears it as a crown. Does Does he deserve this? No, he's done nothing to deserve it. Then why? John has already told us again and again and again because of love. He is taking the curse of the ground on his head because he loves us. We've been invited into this reality all along. And John, it's a bigger story. It's, it's vast. The story is the story of all humanity, all of creation. And he's showing us the climax of that story right here. Thorns not infesting the ground. Thorns that we try to control but ultimately can't. Thorns wrapped as a crown. It also reminded me of our Old Testament text last week. Don't kill, don't kill Isaac. And then he looks up and there's this ram whose horns are stuck in a thicket. I think there are just so many images pointing again and again to this moment right here. 
where our king stands. Behold the man. How do we apply this first thing? I think the application, the first application is simply worship. It's to do what we're being told to do in the text. To see him with eyes of faith. Be humbled. See, see him. The epitome of humanity. Everything that we are not, he is perfectly. See him. I think, I think another great um, lesson for us is looks can be very deceiving. Looks can be deceiving. We see this all through scripture. We see it. Saul is chosen because he's the tallest. He's head and shoulders taller than anybody. He looks like a king. Everybody's like, yay, he's tall, he's good looking, he's our guy. How did that work out? Goliath comes along and suddenly Saul isn't so great. He's hiding behind trees like everybody else. Who who then goes out to fight Goliath? A kid? A teenager? Looks can be deceiving. Again and again and again, we we see this uh, resounding reality in Scripture. And and yet, you and I forget it. We forget it every day. We tend to judge everything based on appearances. And Scripture again and again and again is critiquing that. It's making a mockery of us for doing it. Stop judging based on appearances. Cut it out. How should this act as a corrective for the church as we live in the world? We, you, child of God, are not defined solely based on looks. Our world loves doing this. It's the way you look that matters. Pilate pointing at Jesus Bloody, flogged, crown of thorns, mocked, dressed up like a clown king, saying, behold the epitome of humanity. Don't don't judge based on appearances. I remember this, this song we sang as a kid, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And then it says this, the things of earth will go, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's true. It's true. When we're beholding our king, other things dim out. They fade. It's not as important anymore because he is more important. Behold the archetype of what humanity is supposed to be. Set your gaze on him. Ephesians chapter 5 also talks about appearance. Husbands, love love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. She was marred beyond human semblance so that we might be made beautiful. It's not always outward appearances. He was crushed so that we might be glorious. How do the people respond to this? 
behold the man, what do they, they begin screaming, crucify him. This takes us to our second point that shows that Jesus is the silent lamb. Notice that we just read crucify him, crucify him. Again, we hear Pilate say, why? I don't find any guilt in him. He's not guilty of the things that you're talking about. He's innocent, spotless. This is the second time we've heard this from Pilate. Last week we heard Pilate announce to the crowd in chapter 18, I find no guilt in him. In verse 4, see I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Then verse 6, no guilt in him. Innocent. 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 Is John just playing with our emotions? Are we meant to be thinking and, and trying to psychoanalyze Pilate at this moment? I don't think so. I, don't, I think that's a distraction. I think what we're being invited into is this. He's spotless. He's utterly perfect. Again and again and again. I think John is a brilliant writer. He's reminding us of Exodus 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. When the Passover comes around, don't get a spotted lamb without blemish. Perfect. Here we are at Passover, and John is remembering and reminding us of the very beginning of the gospel where John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here we are at Passover. Again and again and again, His innocence is being put on display. That's not the only part of being the perfect Lamb that we see. In verse 7 through 10, we read this. The Jews answered, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters and again said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Where are you from? I love that John gives us that because he spent the entire book telling us where Jesus is from. He's gone as far back as possible to show exactly where Jesus is from. He's from God. He's from heaven. But in this moment, to this question, he gives no answer. Why? Why would he write that he remained silent in this part of the questioning? I think it's because of our Old Testament text that David read earlier. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He, he could say a word and all of this would, would end. He could say a word and the whole earth would, would melt. Yet he's silent. He's not there because he's guilty. He's there because he's a lamb. He's there to die in our place. This is the beauty of the gospel. He, all of us should be silent. That's the implication. We would try to talk our way out of guilt, but all of us are guilty. He was utterly innocent, and yet he didn't open his mouth 
to protest his innocence. Verse 14, we read this. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour around this time of day. There would be thousands of lambs getting ready to be slaughtered in Jerusalem. This was that moment. John is again taking us by the hand and saying, look, pay attention to all the details. He's even looking at his watch and saying, hey, it's time. It's time for all the lambs to die. And he's going to die. Look at what time it is. He's going to die silent. Not protesting, not kicking and screaming, not saying I'm innocent again and again and again. That's in the words of someone else's mouth. The only thing that Jesus answers is this issue of authority. Jesus clearly is the ultimate Passover lamb. Without the blood of that lamb smeared over the doorpost of your heart, you have no hope. Blessed are all, Psalm 2 says, Your homework is to read Psalm 2. We referenced it last week too, and probably every week during this section we should because it it writes things. It puts them in right perspective. And then John is giving this upside-down perspective. Blessed are all who take refuge in this king. He refuses to answer questions about his origins, but then on the question of authority, that's what he answers. This is a question dealing with the Father. You would have zero authority over me unless, at all, unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate, you're not in control. Again and again and again, we've seen through John that Jesus is utterly in control. This is his cosmic trial. We are all on trial, and Jesus is the just one. Pilate, you're playing a game that is bigger than you. You're not in control. You have no authority. You wouldn't wouldn't be able to preserve my life or kill me apart from the authority given to you from heaven. This leads to our last observation that this portion of the trial is also about Jesus as the king. We remember that we have to remember what Passover is all about. It was liberating Israel from bondage down in Egypt, bondage to a foreign king. That's the setting, that's the backdrop to this portion. The oppressive king that enslaved the people of Israel and would not let them go. And God comes to them in fire and in plagues and on the mountain in thunder and a a pillar of cloud and fire. God comes to liberate them. He brings them out into the land of promise, just as he said. And let's look at this last section again. Pilate wants to release Jesus, but the crowds, the chief priests, are having none of it. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Pilate knows he's stuck. He's stuck. There's something in him that 
believes in the innocence of Jesus, but the crowds are now making this whole thing very political. This is now a, a political moment. Here at Passover, the celebration of liberation from tyranny, you have to see the irony that John wants to invite us into. At Passover, they're celebrating liberation from a tyrant. And here, the people who want to get home in time to eat the meal to celebrate their liberation are saying, yay, tyrant, no king but Caesar. Do you see the irony? Pilate is furious, but he, he knows he must sit in the seat of judgment. This is not a good, this is not a good thing. Whenever you see someone sit like this in judgment, the sentence is done. We, we will also see God, the judge, sit in the seat of judgment. It's not good. It means that you're guilty. So he goes to this stone pavement, to this particular place, and he sits in his seat. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Again, look at your watch. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Look at him. John is again using irony. He wants us to look at our king. Behold your king. Behold the man, behold your king. Utterly mocking. Utterly taunting even the opponents. Everybody's being mocked, but in the middle of all of it, John is saying, look at him. And I'm saying to you this morning, Grace Presbyterian Church, behold your king. But we are meant to see him in all of his glory and splendor. Yeah, dressed like a clown, like a clown king. Utterly mocked, utterly taunted, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why wouldn't people want to be liberated out of bondage to slavery to Caesar? Why would they be okay with that? They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? He's your king. Chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. We prefer the Roman system. They hate Rome. They hate being a political vassal of Rome. They hate the tyranny of the Caesars. They hate that Pilate has all this authority. We've seen from the very beginning, they want all the power for themselves. They hate all of that, but they would rather have that than Jesus. They would rather have the way they define power and glory and goodness and the world around them. They would rather have this system of tyranny than bow the knee to Jesus. I think John is wanting us to ask a few questions of ourselves. Do we want King Jesus, the crucified King, or do we want to be in charge ourselves? Do we want rulers and authorities in our lives that we feel like we can control? Or will we utterly submit to a sovereign Lord who is utterly out of our control? 
He's the one who calls the shots. What area of life has kingship over you? Who calls the shots? Might be your own opinions. Might be some other person out there, a political party, a a secret sin. I think every one of us here has struggles with this reality. Who, Who is king? Who... How much bondage are we willing to put up with to not have to submit to Jesus? We want to define our own king. We we want to be our own king. And John is putting that right in our face. Behold your king. No, he's not. We'd rather have Caesar. No, Jesus is not my king. I would rather have this thing over here. No, Jesus is not my king. I would rather have allegiance to this political party. No, Jesus is not my king. I would rather have so-and-so's opinion about me be good. I think we, every single one of us here is faced, and John is putting it right in front of us. And, and the application is not see how bad they are. It's not see how bad they are. The the reality is every single one of us in here are this exact same way. We have no king but Caesar. What is it for you? I have no king but what? So do we see beneath the surface of what John is writing here? Do we have eyes of faith to see Jesus? Behold the man. Look at the spotless Lamb of God, silent before his killers. Behold your king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, this invitation, even on the lips of Pilate, to see you. Lord, give us hearts of repentance for our allegiance to other kings. And again, bring us uh, repentance and faith and uh, let us truly see with eyes of faith, who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, as we see your flogging and mocking and crucifixion, show us what our sin deserves and the way that you loved us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.